lights, camera, we're going live. Learn the ins and outs of live events from today's top business leaders and how to make yours epic. Here's your host, Aaron Smith. All right, welcome to another episode of Epic Live Events, and we've got an, inc- an incredible event planner here, event organizer, Dan Franks of the infamous podcast movement. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Erin. I know uh, we've been trying to put this one together for a little while, so I'm glad we finally made it work. Yeah, and Dan, this is kind of a, a perfect comeback because Dan is part of the reason why this whole podcast is here. He was part of the mastermind I talked about originally that when I really noticed, wow, I wasn't alone in this. Uh, this wasn't just my roller coaster. Everybody seems to ride this roller coaster. Yep. Uh, Dan was there to help. So Dan, like I said, is the one of the co-founders of Podcast Movement, which has been, you guys are entering your fifth year this year, correct? That's right. Five years strong. And I mean, just the growth that's happened. I was there year one. I was there year two. I mean, and just the growth between those two years was amazing. And so I can't wait to talk about this with you and, and how you've grown it, how you've built it. But I want to first talk about the beginning because you, you know, the big question is, do you build the community first and then the event or does the event build your community? You guys did this beautifully because you really, it was podcast movement was the first. You didn't have a podcast movement company for seven years that you were building. It really built the company, but you did it as a Kickstarter. So can you talk about those first few months, you know, you get the idea and then what decided to, what made you decide to do a Kickstarter? And then if a Kickstarter is what you'd recommend for others to try doing too, and why or why not? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we certainly started with with nothing, literally nothing but uh, our own personal networks. And I think a lot of event organizers, that's that's potentially where they're going to be. Now, I know there are people who have companies and say, hey, an event would be a great add-on to what I'm already doing for my community or for my current existing business. Uh, that wasn't us. We were uh, all podcasters ourselves, myself and myself and the three other uh, founders and organizers of podcast movement at the time. And we all just kind of saw this need for something that we wanted, which was a conference for podcasters to go to. Uh, it's something that didn't exist in the form we wanted it to. And despite the the three of us or the four of us not having any experience running any large scale events, especially like the one we were going to potentially put together, uh, so, so, so we, we had no experience. That's where we started. And we started looking around for how can we validate this idea? How can we fund this idea? We didn't have the money to get it off the ground ourselves. None of us really wanted to uh, invest a lot of personal funds because it really was just on a whim. Again, we had no, but we had no built in audience at the time. So uh, examining a number of different options and a crowdfunding campaign just kept coming up and coming up. And this was uh, 2014, early 2014. And this is when uh, I would say Kickstarter really started to reach its stride. Um, crowdfunding now, just everyone knows it. There's three or four websites you can go to. Everyone's familiar with the concept. And that was just becoming the case in early 2014. And Kickstarter was just becoming a household name. Uh, so it wasn't something as established as it was now. I mean, that was our one hesitation was like, do people, are we first going to have to explain what this platform is before we explain what it is we're trying to sell? So that, that was our biggest holdup was like, do we have to explain two things at once? Um, 
So that was our biggest holdup, but we decided, well, if none of us have the money, we don't really even know if this is a great idea because we didn't have that built-in community to go to and say, hey, do you want us to do this? Or, hey, would you pay money for this? So all of those things combined uh, made us look to Kickstarter. And the way we structured that Kickstarter campaign was uh, we, we set out a goal of what we thought it would cost to run an event. Now, knowing what we know now, <laughs> we weren't anywhere close. I think our initial goal was $10,000. And yeah. we said, if we can raise $10,000, we can put together this uh, two-day small conference at, a, at a, a community center is what we were going to do uh, here in the Dallas area. And that was our initial concept. Get some friends together. And if we can just raise $10,000 on this Kickstarter, that'll get us get us to where we need to be. And, and the unique thing we did from other Kickstarters was we used the Kickstarter to uh, sell tickets, to pre-sell tickets to the event. So anyone who's familiar with Kickstarter or other crowdfunding platforms knows that you can set different uh, price tiers. And if somebody contributes that certain amount of money to your, uh, your campaign, then they get certain prizes or certain rewards is what Kickstarter calls them. And we set it so that depending on how much someone contributes, they got a different tier of ticket. So if you contributed $70, you got an entry level ticket to the event. If you contributed, you know, $150, you got the next level up uh, and more and more you would get, um, you know, dinner with some of the speakers and all the different things that we do with different ticket tiers for different conferences. Um, but that's how we priced out the reward system of that crowdfunding campaign. And I initially, we even sold sponsorships through that Kickstarter campaign as well. So if you wanted to be, you know, a $5,000 level sponsor, you too would contribute through that Kickstarter campaign. So that was the initial idea was that we would pre-sell tickets through this Kickstarter campaign. If we didn't reach our goal, then that's our our, you know, our kind of lack of proof of concept that was showing that there wasn't uh, as much interest as we thought there was. Uh, so, so initially when we went in for the crowdfunding campaign to pre-sell the event, it was to not only pre-sell tickets, but also prove out the concept. No. And so how much over your goal? Cause you guys raised a lot more than 10. Yeah. So uh, the funny thing was we were arguing over is $10,000. Is that too much? Like wouldn't, <laughs> because the thing with Kickstarter is if you don't get more than your goal, if you don't exceed your goal, then you get nothing. So oh. we were all internally struggling. Like, well, what if we get $9,900 and we don't get to 10,000, then we lose it all. Like maybe we should go lower. And then, you know, some of us were like, oh, it's probably going to be more expensive. So maybe we should ask for more. Um, so we had that internal struggle initially, like, is this the right amount to even ask for? And then we were kind of laughing afterwards because we exceeded that goal in the first like 24 hours. Wow. So, so we had, uh, that, there was our proof of concept. And then uh, we ended up tripling our goal by the end of it, I think. And uh, what happened, the funny thing was, after that 24 hours, we immediately knew, okay, this venue that we have a hold on for our event is too small. Like we've already filled it up just with pre-sales. Now we've got to start looking for a venue. Problem was we had already put the date of the event on the Kickstarter because if people from out of town are pre-purchasing these tickets, they need a date, they need a location. So we were handcuffed and now we had to start finding another venue in the same metropolitan area that was available on the same date, which ended up being like about six months out. So we uh, had forced ourselves in, into a weird, real quick turnaround there. Interesting. But so I love how you did it because I know I've talked to you about this offline too. In being there the first year, the, it really, I know it's your, you know, you, you've and four initially started it, but it really was the event of the, 
I know it sounds cheesy, but the event of the people, like you've right. built a cult like following of, and people are, you know, advertising it for you. Like there's just this excitement. Like if you're a podcaster, podcast movement is the place to be. How have you cultivated that community after building it to really continue to grow it into that, that feel? I mean, I'll say, I, I think by accident, but that crowdfunding, uh, being how we kicked it off with the crowdfunding campaign kind of helped with that because, you know, crowdfunding, the whole idea behind it is we're building this together, right? We can't do it by ourselves. No one else has tried to do it by themselves. But if you guys help out and join up forces with us, we can kind of do this together. So I think, you know, that was an unintended side effect of us doing the crowdfunding campaign was it really did kind of join together the community and bring people together to get excited about this. And that has carried on. Um, and certainly there's other things we do at the event that makes people feel included and makes people feel involved and, and makes people feel that ownership of it, uh, that we really do try to be that event for the community. But I think it just all started with that, that way we, you know, we, we, we started it with the crowdfunding campaign. And I don't necessarily think someone would have to start it with the crowdfunding campaign. There's probably other ways to when you're launching an event and launching the concept that you can get other people to still feel that same ownership and that same involvement. But for us, it was just kind of built in. Yeah, I think it's a great way to do it because I, I I will be honest, my mistake was almost doing it the opposite where it's just like, well, I'll just build it. And I think you did it very well. So I want to talk about the jump between year one and year two because it just, you know, was, I, this is not a rip on year one. I thought you guys pulled it off beautifully. It was a great event, but there was definitely a difference in the feel, in the look, in the running of the conference between year one and year two. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause it just seemed like you up leveled a thousand percent between those. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this, you learn so many lessons when you're, yes. when you just do something like you can read as many blogs and books and listen to <laughs> podcasts about any subject as much as you want, but everything is different when you're actually doing it. So, you know, we thought we were prepared and we were prepared. Nothing broke, nothing fell apart. Everything went off at the first year, but there's just little things you, you learn. And I think as we've progressed from year one to year two to three, four or five, um, people ask, oh, what are all the different things you're doing? And the answer every year becomes more and more. We're just tweaking little things. Like we found a formula that people like and, and works. So now what are these little incremental improvements we can, we can do? And I even feel like from year one to year two, that's what it was. It was still um, you know, it was still a Saturday, Sunday event. It was still two days. It was still very similar formula in terms of, you know, you got keynotes, you got breakout sessions, you got panels. So a lot of the bones were exactly the same, but it was just uh, tweaks. And, and one of the tweaks, the biggest tweak was we uh, had a little more uh, validation in terms of when we reached out to bigger name speakers. Uh, it was easier yeses in year two than year one because we actually had something to show. So that was the biggest struggle we had in year one was we thought, you know, we really need some big name speakers, some some speakers that uh, our community will will um, recognize and respect and will make them want to buy tickets and want to come to the sessions. And <clears throat> we did that in year one, but, you know, we, we got a bunch of no's in year one too. And those same no's from year one uh, turned into yeses for year two. So, I mean, I think the two biggest changes were starting to get more yeses because we had something to show people. Uh, but then also, you know, just tweaking a bunch of those little lessons, a bunch of those little things we learned uh, as we went into the second year. And can you talk about like just paying attention more? It seems like the details were a bit different, right? As you grow, like that's the, when you're talking about the little tweaks, it's like paying attention to those little details that 
you maybe I personally didn't think were a big deal. You were it's like, ah, who cares? Like right. I didn't even know I needed lighting till the week yeah. before. Yeah. So could you talk about a few of those and just how you've paid attention to them differently or how they've evolved? Yeah. So uh, a few things, um, you know, the biggest one for me is the production aspect. So I come from more uh, somewhat of an entertainment background. Uh, so to me, kind of that look and feel of when you're in the sessions, what does it feel like from the moment someone enters the door of the ballroom to the, to the moment they leave? And in year one, that just wasn't really a thing. We didn't have music playing when people walked into the ballroom. The backdrop was just a simple black pipe and drape, whereas the second year, we had a full-blown production set built out that um, people always talk about our sets for our main stages, and that's something that we invest heavily in so that we're, you know, we're, we're proud of. And that was something that we changed uh, very heavily from year one to year two. Um, even from the room signage outside of each of the ballrooms, in year one, uh, we just let the hotels put the the things on the digital screens outside the doors and the names of the sessions. Uh, in year two, we had the printed signage, you know, the the six or seven foot tall signs outside each room with the names of all the speakers. Uh, and then kind of the last thing I would say, just that, that look and feel that people get when they come into our venue is we started wrapping uh, pillars and posts within the common areas. Uh, when you pulled up to the hotel, there was a cling over the window that said, welcome to podcast movement at the main valet. Um, in the lobby, we had them put gobos all over the place and wrap some of the columns in the lobby. So just that, that feel. So like I said, the structure was the same. The bones were the same. There were sessions happening at the same time in the same similar places like there was in year one, but it just felt different because of those little upgrades. And I say little upgrades, some of them were more expensive than others, but you know, people didn't necessarily know, like, why does this year feel so much better than last year? Because the schedule kind of looks the same when we glance at it. But, but those are the things that they really just walk away feeling like, Hey, this it was a step up. Yeah, I agree. No, it was a, it was a big difference. And can you talk about sponsorship? Because you, you've done really well. You're selling out sponsorships. You're bringing big names. You're doing like, like I said, very well with your sponsors. What are some of your tips and tricks for making sponsors happy and having them come back year after year? Yeah. So I think we, um, we were in a unique position since we were creating an event in a space where there wasn't a similar event. We were able to go to potential sponsors and say, you know, if this is the type of person you're trying to target, if these are the types of people you, you want your product or service to get in front of, there's nowhere else that you can get what we're offering you. So there's certainly other types of events where, you know, it's much more competitive spaces and, you know, they try to decide, you know, where their dollars are going to go. And that's still the case with the people we work with in terms of sponsorships. But what we offer, um, especially at that time, no one else was offering that same thing. So I think that uniqueness of, of our event and what we had to offer, um, a very niche down audience, uh, that helped a lot. Um, but, you know, what we also had to do the first year was we had to take on some sponsors that, you know, I'm not going to talk bad about any of our sponsors. Everyone was, everyone was great and they helped us make the first year possible. But their, their businesses and products and services didn't necessarily align perfectly with who our attendees were. So that's kind of, a two, I'm talking two different sides of this. Some of our sponsors were perfect fits and we were only, you know, the only conference for them. But then on the flip side, there were people who had disposable income and they were able to give some of it to us. So we just took it. Um, so I, I, you know, I think kind of that accepting of um, as long as it didn't go against any of our core values and we didn't, you know, hurt the conference by having some of these sponsors there. Um, it was just kind of a necessary evil. Uh, and then in future years, again, the same thing with those bigger name speakers that we were able to secure year two that we weren't year one. 
same thing with sponsors. Once you have something tangible to show them, uh, then, then you have something that you can sell versus just an idea. You have pictures, you have videos, you have sponsor decks um, that, that we didn't know to put any of this together in the first year. And I will, would say the number one mistake we did not, uh, or the number one mistake we made in terms of sponsorships bridging year one to year two was we didn't take enough videos and pictures of sponsorship uh, of things that sponsors would be interested in. So, um, you know, we took a lot of videos of people talking on stage and a lot of pictures of people talking on stage, uh, but we didn't take as many pictures of the expo area. We didn't take as many videos of the sponsored parties and things like that. And those are the types of things that when you go to pitch a new sponsor that wasn't at the event last year, they say, do you have pictures or videos of what you're trying to sell us? And we didn't, you know, we scraped some together. But if that's something I knew ahead of time, and that's something, you know, when we work with our videographers and photographers now, that's at the top of the list is, you know, when we give them bullet points of here's what we need you to capture, uh, it's always capture all the booths, make sure at the parties you're capturing whatever the sponsor's activation is. Um, we, have, we had a big luau last year at our Anaheim event and the sponsors emceed it. Um, and we had videos of them on stage emceeing the event and, and you know, talking about their product and service. So then when we're trying to sell that same party to a new sponsor next year, if we need to get a new sponsor, we can say, here's what happened last year. And look at this person on stage with the fire dancers talking about their, you know, product. It's like, Hey, this is a big production. And this is something that you can have. Whereas just describing it, you know, some people might interpret it as a good thing. Other people might not be able to visualize it. So in terms of sponsorships, that was our biggest kind of lesson learned was let's make sure to capture more pictures and more videos than we'll ever need for those assets to provide to potential future sponsors. That's a great tip. When it comes to video and, and photography, you really can't have enough because I agree with you. Those are things I, cause I want, you're thinking about marketing, right? And so you're thinking about marketing the people. So you want, like you said, the speakers, the, the events, all of that, but it's a great point about the speak or the sponsors. Are you doing anything too? I know you've changed up some of the way that you set up the structure. You're doing things within the sponsorship hall uh, that you necessarily weren't doing before. Can you talk a little bit about that to make sure, because just a sponsorship, you know, these people want to make, feel like people are coming to their booths, all that. Uh, tips and tricks on that too, of how you change things up to get people more involved. Yeah. So this has kind of been a constant, I won't call it struggle, but evolution for us. Um, what our event does, and we didn't really get into this, but we move every year to a different city, which means to a different venue. And anyone who's run multiple events in multiple venues knows that no ven no two venues are the same, not only in terms of management and the sales team and everything, but also obviously in terms of the layouts and the, the allocation of rubber room space. So every year, our expo hall is in a different type setup. And our expo hall is our number one revenue generator outside of ticket sales is just selling booths because that's what we have the most of. Um, and in year one and two, the expo hall was more of a common area. So the layouts of the hotels uh, and the ballrooms uh, allowed us to set up booths kind of in the common area. So the rooms would exit into the expo, into the booths. And as you mentioned, the sponsors loved that because there was always foot traffic. There was constantly people walking by their booths, constantly traffic. Um, and that's great. But as we've grown and as we've started to have to find different venues, uh, last year was our first year where we had a traditional expo hall. So its own ballroom where 
there wasn't that natural foot traffic. There wasn't people just walking out of one session and immediately in the expo hall. Um, and that was a struggle for us last year to figure out, well, if we're now, you know, all these uh, exhibitors that we've trained to be familiar with being in the common area, now we're shoving them, you know, I felt like we were shoving them into a ballroom. What can we do to make them not feel that way and to try to keep the foot traffic up? So there's a number of things we did. And the easiest was when we serve coffee and snacks to the attendees to put those within that area. So if you want coffee or snacks, like in between sessions, you have to walk past all the vendors. So that was one way we created that natural traffic. Um, and, and the key to that, though, is to then make sure that everyone knows that's where the coffee and, and snacks are. Because if you put it in there trying to, you know, quote unquote, trick them to walk past the booths, they have to know that it's there. It's not in that common area. So they don't just automatically see, hey, there's a coffee. So that's that's the first thing we did. And then this year or last year, we also built out two plexiglass rooms within that expo hall. So um, we actually held breakout sessions during all the breakout session time slots inside the expo hall. So to kind of recreate that that feeling of people going to the sessions through the expo hall and getting out of the sessions and being within the expo hall. So those are a few of the things we did as well as some organized networking. Uh, we put like a little lounge in the middle of the expo hall. So a number of different things that would just bring people into the expo hall because, you know, naturally if, if you're going to a conference and you're not looking to buy anything, you're not looking to be sold anything, you're looking to learn at the sessions, that expo hall might be at the one room that you don't have any interest in going to. So just kind of a, taking a step back and thinking, what can we do to make people interested to go in there? And then oftentimes, you know, most expo halls are not as intimidating as attendees think they are. Um, usually they're valuable and they see, you know, they see a, a microphone manufacturer that they use their microphone so they can go talk to them and they're not going to get sold anything, but they kind of see, you know, someone they recognize becomes a friend, becomes an ally over there. So there's a lot of that kind of thing that happens once you get people in there. It's just how do you do that the first time? Now, those are great tips because like you said, the, the common area is easy, but you've got to create that, that community uh, uh, between the two. So we're running on our time. I would love to know just some of the things that you look back now, you're five years in, you've built this amazing event. It's only growing at this point. What are some of the key things you think you all have done or either key things you've done to grow it to this level or just lessons learned from just an initial event. I was with you. I don't know what I'm doing. I just want this event to, whoa, you guys are much bigger than I am. But just some key lessons learned too in this. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to be generic, but relationships have been so important for us. And when you're running a conference, there's way more, I guess you could call them verticals of relationships than you first expect, because certainly you want to, you know, like we talked about sponsorship interactions and sponsorship and, and all of that. You've got to maintain those relationships with the sponsors. At the same time, uh, you've got to maintain relationships with past, present, and future speakers, because the speakers are oftentimes what people buy tickets for. They look at the, you know, the big name keynote speaker on the headline, or they see people speaking at your event that they know, like, and trust. So those are people that you want to make happy and continue to make happy and show respect to. And have them wanting to come back as much as you want them to come back. And then the third is really that relationship with your attendees. There are people buying tickets because, you know, it's just like any other sales. It's much easier to retain a customer than to find a new customer. Yep. So that's something that we, uh, I feel like we lost sight of a little bit in the middle years there was, um, you know, we just kind of, 
took those uh, current attendees for granted. They've come the past few years. They're going to come back. So let's keep finding new customers, new customers, new customers. And last year, we had a ton of brand new attendees, but I was a little let down by how, how few returning attendees we had. So that was immediately something we went to work on is, you know, what can we do to not only keep bringing in new people to that top of the funnel to use the sales term, but how do we keep those people that we've already brought out to podcast movement that, you know, on their post event survey, they all said they had a great time. Let's figure out why they haven't come back and let's identify who they are and identify what the issue is and, you know, rebuild those relationships. So, you know, a lot of times you look at the revenue coming from the sponsors or the fancy names of the speakers, and those are the relationships that seem most important. But, you know, the real bread and butter that makes both the speakers and the sponsors happy is a lot of people coming to your event or high level people coming to your event or whatever that goal is. So that's the one relationship that I I think is most important Mm -hmm. um, out of the three. And I think that that's the biggest thing for us is to learn how to value each of those relationships differently, but also thoroughly. So how have you done that with the, the attendees? What have you done differently to really connect with them and make sure... Yeah, so luckily we've used um, some two different ticketing platforms uh, as we've uh, run all our events the past four years, but they all had really good uh, statistics and ability to pull customer lists. And we ran basically a comparative list and we created uh, almost like a CRM for each customer, each attendee. And we could identify now this person went to these two years events. This is where they dropped off. So we could send targeted emails to those people. And I say targeted emails like you, we could have loaded it into our um, email system. Mm-hmm. But one of us, Jared, my co-organizer for the event, he went through one by one and emailed all whatever wow. hundred people um, over the course of a weekend and basically said, you know, we know you, you've come to the past few podcast movements. We see you didn't register this year, you know is there a chance we can still get you to come out this year? You know, we're still a month away. If not, like what, you know, let us know what the issue is and we'd love to find a way to have you back out next year. And what it did was it stirred up quite a few things that we didn't even realize were issues. Um, The biggest one, quite honestly, and this is one that we could easily fix, it was the date. People let us know the past few years, it's been earlier in the year. This year, it's the week that school goes back in session. We have kids, so we could miss their second week of school or we could miss, you know, we could be gone the week before, but this one week is back to school. We're not missing it. So, you know, we were like, that's great to know. There was no, no one had told us that no one had volunteered that information until we went to them. So then we could easily say great news. Here's next year's events. Here's the next, you know, here's 2020's dates. We can start, you know, reach, you know, sending them all these, uh, you know, all these reminders. And then we know, okay, let's follow up with this person. Let's make sure if they're telling us the date was the issue, let's make sure we stay on them and that they know that you know it, it, it's not an issue this year and we still want to make sure that they follow through with what they said as we'd come back if the date were different. So that's just one example of what those personal emails stirred up. And I'm, you know, there was other things of people saying, you know, all different issues. When you ask people for right. their opinion, you get all get kinds it. of issues. <laughs> but those, but those were it were opinions and issues that we did not know until we started contacting them. And there was quite a few bridges that That's we right. rebuilt based on that personal touch. I love stuff like that. And real quick, can you touch on how? Like, I I know you've brought this up when we mastermind too, but the connections, because there's, all right, you get the event, you talk to your sponsors, your speakers at the event. That's great. Then there's this whole year in between. And obviously you're communicating if they're coming on board, but what are some tips and tricks for maintaining the relationship with the speakers and sponsors outside of just, Hey, 
are you going to re-sponsor next year? Yes or no? Okay. But, you know, being more intimate than just you coming back, yes or no, and that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, something I do, and this is more for the sponsors, is I keep uh, Google alerts going for a lot of the sponsors' uh, names. I kind of have a, a Google alert list where Google will send me an email if some, one of my sponsors is in the news. Um, same thing with Twitter lists. I'll put their, you know, I'll have a list of all my sponsors. So I can just kind of every once in a while keep an eye on what's going on. And if one of my sponsors just announces a new, you know, a new deal or a new product release or a new feature release, I'll just reply to that, you know, that, that news article or whatever. And I'll say, Hey, I just saw this. Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, and sometimes I'll say, hopefully you bring this new microphone to podcast movement if they're already re-upped or, you know, I might drop a hint and, you know, just kind of bridge the gap between, Hey, congratulations. And, you know, I'm, I'm the podcast movement guy kind of thing. Um, but you know, that's more of a personal preference based on, you know, your relationship with this person and stuff. But I, I always try to kind of have those touch points. Um, when it makes sense, I don't try to force anything. Um, but I have those touch points and that's been really big for me because, you know, they'll oftentimes just say thanks back and that's it. But like you said, that's that dialogue that stays open and it's not that immediately makes it that not every email to him is to try to sell him something. Sometimes it's just, Hey, you guys are doing awesome here. Um, and I'll do the same thing with speakers just because we have a lot more of them. I'm a little less like tracking them, but I'll certainly keep an eye on what's going on. And if I see someone in the news or if I see someone in the Facebook group or our Facebook group, we run uh, commenting or posting about a win they've had or a struggle they're, they're having. Um, I'll make sure to reach out to them and just maintain those relationships the same way really that we try to do with our attendees as well. So a lot of times the speakers are also attendees. So they fall a little more into that same kind of circle, but the sponsors, it's obviously very important to not always be sell, sell, sell. No, that is a great tip. And I love it too, because it, it lets them know you're paying attention to them. You actually care about them outside of just sponsorship. And I love yeah, and that. I th- and I think that's the one thing that, that's unique to me and, and uh, some of the other event organizers is we're not just an event organizer. We created this event because it's a space we're active in, a space we're passionate about. Um, so we're not just like, hey, running this event. My job isn't just to cold call sponsors. It's not just to run speaker submissions. Um, I'm really running this event because of my involvement in the community. So when these things happen in the community and they're aware that I'm aware of it, that just adds that little extra touch that, you know, a little more genuine than some of the other people that might just be looking for a sale. I love it. All right. So if somebody wanted to attend podcast movement, can you give us the dates of this year's and where they can go to get more information and buy a ticket? Yeah, so podcastmovement.com is a place to go to check it all out. Um, It's an event for podcasters. So anyone who's into podcasting or looking to get into it, it's a great way to go learn uh, how to do it, meet some of the other people doing it. And you can go to podcastmovement.com. It's this July 23rd through 26th in Philadelphia. And we'd love to meet some new people out there. All right. And I can speak for it. I've been to several and it's a really great event. Very well run. Uh, Lots to learn. So kudos on what you guys are doing. And by the time this goes live, Dan will be a new father. I'm so excited for him. That's right. So Uh, uh, (laughs) I've already got some, uh, someone sent me some podcast movement baby shirts. So (laughs) already set. Yeah. That's great. Dan, thank you so much for this. Amazing tips and tricks. And again, congrats on all your success. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, it's Aaron's from the Epic Live Events, and hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Now, I would love to help you with your live event. And how we're going to do that is by offering you our free live events budget worksheet. Listen, events take a lot of resources, whether it's time, money, or a little bit of both. 
you've got to figure out a way to really utilize this in your business to make your money back. So this spreadsheet has both sides, the different costs you may potentially have, how you can fill those in. You can just you know, fill in whatever number estimates, call some people, get an understanding of what it may cost you to put this event or different ways. Um, you can save some money. And then of course, on the other side, how are you going to make money back? Are you going to sell at the event? Are you going to sell tickets? Are you going to get sponsorship? Are there going to be different things that you can utilize in order to begin to make your money back? And this is a spreadsheet that will help you kind of, I'm a spreadsheet girl. That's how I think all the time, but this will help you really start putting the concept to paper or how can you do better in your, in your next event and, you know, really make sure that bottom line, because as much as I would love to do events for free, I can't like it's, it's a resource heavy thing, but I promise you so, so worth it. So you can find that you can go to our show notes over at epicliveevents.co. That's co. You can also get it in the notes of this episode or jump over to bit bit.ly.ly slash epic underscore budget. Again, that's bit.ly slash epic underscore budget. And you can grab that, like I said, for free, start the planning. And I'm telling you, it's so worth it every single bit.